In honor of Oppenheimer, what is the best cinematic explosion? I'm Katie Rich, and this is not cinema technically, uh, but J.J. Yeah. Abrams playing the keyboard during Cool Guys Don't Look at Explosions at the 2009 MTV Movie Awards with Andy Samberg and Will Ferrell um, means a lot to me. I like that you started, you you picked this question and then didn't pick cinema. <laughs> I just uh, couldn't get it out of my head, and that was where I decided to go with my heart. I, I'm Matt Patches, and I guess I'm going to go with Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls uh, nuking the fridge scene. It just has a very picturesque uh, mushroom cloud that we'll we'll talk about Oppenheimer later, but not, not necessarily fetishizing in that way. I'm David Ehrlich, and I, uh, this lack of having an indexical memory of all the great movie explosions ready to go. I, I'm just going to stick with the J.J. Abrams theme. Gotta uh, pay the man our respects. And go, I guess it's not really an explosion. I don't know. Whatever the fuck's happening on that bridge in Mission Impossible 3 when the jet an flies explosion. by and Tom Cruise. Yeah, the little explosion. There's a missile. missile there's a little explosion. The, yeah. Yeah, fly sideways into the car. Why not? That's You're cool. Good. You're safe. Does he look at the explosion? Oh, he's being I mean, thrown into a car. No, he's like, yeah, he's like kind of running away from it, and then it knocks him into a car. You know, you running know away shot. from it does seem like does seem like a wise choice. Again, I've said I said last week. I'm saying again, asking me to remember things about what happens in Mission Impossible movies. Don't do it. It's never going to work mm. for me. Clearly, you need to watch anything. more Pluto TV, where the movies are just always playing. Pluto TV, today's sponsor on Pol- uh, <laughs> Fighting in the Worm. Oh God, no, Some, we don't. Polygon. Someday, on Polygon. <laughs> where am I? Of our podcast. Who am I? Where am I? Is Polygon sponsoring us? <laughs> That'd be nice. Well, gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good. Then, well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 437. It is the week of Wednesday, July 19th. That's the day that in 1969, Senator Ted Kennedy crashed his car into a pond in a place called Chappaquiddick, as dramatized in the movie Chappaquiddick, starring Oppenheimer's own Jason Clark. Is that your favorite Rob Reiner film? Did Rob Reiner direct that movie? I want to say yes. Oh, boy. Also, you can't just Oppenheimer's own an actor because then literally every white actor <laughs> in the English-speaking universe will be Oppenheimer's own. Henceforth. Casey Affleck, best known for Oppenheimer. I'm going to have to oh, issue, no. I'm gonna issue a correction here. He, yeah, he did not do Chappaquiddick. You know what he did? He did LBJ, a movie that no one oh. no one saw, but uh, Chappaquiddick directed by John Curran of Stone I, I, I have to inform you that you are currently on a Zoom call with an individual who saw the film LBJ. I saw it at the Toronto International <laughs> Film Festival. And how dare you gaslight me into thinking otherwise. Woody Harrelson, he really was LBJ. You will believe a man wait. can yeah, he LBJ. About, he talks about his hog a lot, and I say hog, which is a word I've never used out loud in context of the, the male... Gen- genitals, <laughs> but I think in this movie wow. that is what he's referred to. It feels like a, a Woody Harrelson is LBJ uh, uh, term. You don't refer to your genitals as a hog. Is that what do you uh, I mean, what do you say? Um, and he because like LBJ <laughs> famously had like a a significant penis, a big hog, and oh. yeah, and he like likes to pee with the door open in the Oval Office and shit. And he's like always talking about his dick. That's really all I remember I about that movie. I did not realize that. Is the does the B stand for boner or is the J yeah. for Johnson? You know who else is I think in Oppenheimer? Both those do. It's, uh, 
Lars Wait, it is Lyndon Boner B. Johnson. Johnson. It's Lyndon Boner Johnson. <laughs> oh, well, this is a great Dave's podcast that people listen to. Dave's going to be sad he missed you guys talking about LBJ's penis. I'm just going to say it. Uh, can, Dave is not here because he's seeing Barbie. We, we should call, um, like, a, like, is there like a 9-1 equivalent where even if someone's <laughs> phone is on airplane, you can notify anyway. Notify them anyway. And leave yeah. his screening of Barbie so that he can mm-hmm. read the latest about Large Boner Johnson. That feels very anti-Barbie. I haven't seen Barbie yet, but that just does not feel like uh, what the vibe of Barbie is. Uh, So, yeah. uh, There are very few, I would say, no penises in Barbie. uh, We are splitting Barbenheimer in half uh, because I haven't seen Barbie yet. And uh, Patches, have you seen Barbie? No, No, you're seeing it this week. Yeah. Okay. Uh, So we're talking about Oppenheimer this week. But actually, before we get to that, David, do we have any reviews? Listen, I I got to level with you guys. We uh, do not have any reviews, but I am too fucking tired, in large part thanks to Oppenheimer, to mm, ramble on it. for three to four minutes about what's happening with my kitty bounce deck in Marvel Snap and how I'm waiting the start of the Infinity Conquest and how I... We already talked about how I fit Infinity for How's, the season. How's uh, Phoenix treating you? Is, is she resurrecting There's, some just, cards? Are you getting the extra bonuses where you she, have to use the new her, cards? To... Her mechanic is just not really relevant to the decks that I've been playing right now. I know they're trying to push destruction decks because that's what Phoenix plays into, but it's not really my bag right now. Again, as I said, Patches... I'm a kitty bounce guy. <laughs> he doesn't have the so, time to keep talking about I'm a this. Bounce obviously, guy. there's not a destructive element in my kitty bounce deck. So Phoenix Force can fuck off for now. Katie, um, are you still but, playing Marvel Snap, or did you escape into real oh, life? And uh, I kind of got off of it. Um, I need to get I, like, well, no, I kind of am too because like the result really? is that I wind up looking at like social media more, and I don't like. I think I downloaded Threads in Blue Sky. and was like, I'm going to try this. And I don't oh, really that like is either not of them. An upgrade. Yeah, it's really not. Um, I kept thinking like one of them would take off and be pleasant, and neither of them is, and I still don't have Twitter on my phone. So, um, yeah, I think I need to get back into Marvel Snap. Yeah, only yeah, one, yeah. Only one platform is really equipped to do the Spider-Man pointing meme all the time, and it's Marvel <laughs> Snap, not any of the other social media. <laughs> so, join them. Uh, Katie, I want to know your deck. Uh, Whatever she has on level one. I have like six, don't I? You well, I mean, six. you can have like 20, but like what's the one you're really riding? Okay, here I'm gonna. Nothing. It's been my deck five. You need to go back. I know, no, but like I got like restarted. I'm really not uh, far enough along to have anything to boast about. But I'm gonna look this up right now because yeah. nobody left us a review. And even though David said he was tired, I'm so tired. Uh, <laughs> it's taking forever to load. It does take um, a little while to load. Why I mean, does Mar- what's with Marvel Snap? It's not a big app. All right, so deck five. Well, see, I discovered uh, you can play five. it on your computer. Oh, also, so it's heavy on the collector. So if I have oh, the collector, oh, I love and then the I've collector. got Falcon sending stuff around, and I've yes. got Moon Girl, so I'm just wow. adding a bunch oh, of shit to my deck. Look at your combos. Uh, Moon Girl. Uh, that's, un- that's, that's Yeah, if you I have collector, collector, and then Moon Girl yeah. and then and then you have Devil Dinosaur. So then when love Moon Girl makes dinosaur. your deck huge, you get Devil Dinosaur in there. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's working all right, and then like Kitty Pride's in there, which like doesn't really fit in with all of that, but I enjoy Kitty Pride. I mean, all, wait. So my, that's my, so you're saying Kitty Pride's at the center of your deck is what? Yeah, you're, Kitty Pride. I mean, she's the namesake of my deck. You know, she is the mm. card that synergizes with everything she's coming else. Back. Um, she's but powering man, up. I, we love the collector, uh, <laughs> and I'm not big. Like, I'm not really big on my variants. I don't really care. I'm not spending money for like making my cards look slightly different. But I am rocking really? the Dan Hip variant of the collector. I'm assuming that Dan Hip is a yeah, very cute, recognizable. 
comic book artist because uh, my version of the collector looks like a Rick and Morty character or something. Um, and uh, yeah, love busting that guy out in turn two. Um, Imagine if you don't play this game. Falcon Are you still listening to the podcast? <laughs> this is well, what people, people have to do. Robin Heimer, you're certainly they? not doing anything better with your life if you're not playing Marvel Snap. We are Snap, going to talk so. about Arvin. Uh, what's, anyway. worse, what's worse for society? Marvel Snap or the Atomic Bomb? Or the Atomic Bomb, I think. Yeah, now that you've seen Oppenheimer. Uh, I would no, love I think to see a Christopher Nolan film about the creation of Marvel Snap when <laughs> now I have become death, the destroyer of Destro- hundreds of hours of your free time. We have to stop, um, Oppie! We have to not publish the latest update on Marvel Snap! They can't handle it! This is uh, um, this is gonna be like when they said Aaron Sorkin is making a Facebook movie and we're like, that's dumb, and then we loved it. Uh, yeah. Nolan's Marvel Snap movie. It's gonna be, that's how we got to the Beanie Babies movie, which. I was gonna uh, say, did you see the Beanie Babies talk- movie? I did, I did. It's oh, no. Not talking about today. Um, <laughs> that, but I, I will say, um, it is the only movie I've ever seen directed by Al Gore's daughter and uh, her husband, the lead singer of OK Go. What a team. Wow. Um, but, no, uh, either any of those things. Wait, yeah, really? The guy TV from OK Go week. directed the Beanie Babies movie? Co-directed. Don't erase one. And is married no, to uh, Al Gore's daughter. He actually no, has. Uh, I've been watching a lot of OK Go music videos with my daughter. They're good for kids. Mm, they're just yeah, like they, are good um, they have goofy I, premises and they're extremely visual. He has some panache. S- he has I a creative will say mind. That um, Michelle Gondry aside, like, maybe from the opening credit sequence in which they film uh, or recreate a. Real event, which is when a truck full of Beanie Babies crashed on the highway and people came out of the woodwork like rabid animals uh, to grab the Beanie Babies off of the pavement. Um, and they recreate that in the very beginning of the movie with like phantom cameras at a thousand frames per second. They slow down to you know, make art. it look very balletic. Um, aside from that, uh, very little visual panache going on in this movie. Uh, you would not necessarily it ever be able to budget. guess that it was co-directed by the guy who was directing this okay go music videos um or at least i think there's sort of a movie out there with some visual panache uh coming your way in the theaters this weekend. uh yeah, yeah. um but Zing. there actually isn't really a scene in oppenheimer as i guess all of us know where someone's like oppenheim oppie you have to stop everyone's just kind of like when's that bomb gonna be ready um, anyway. yeah, I don't know. There's our, there's our, there's our pal David Crumholtz. He's just like, don't do it. And he's like, yeah, he's eh. like, yeah, he, but then he sticks like, around. Hey, and... Oppie, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Eat an orange. Um, Eat an orange. He's like Jew, Jew to Jew, Killian Murphy. <laughs> Let's not spoil our podcast. This is, this is all we have in Sega I was three. so glad that, like, it, it's imperative that they mention that Oppenheimer's Jewish, but I thought that Christopher Nolan, if you're going to cast Killian Murphy as Oppenheimer, made the right decision to then immediately pretend as if that never came up and never mention it again. <laughs> oh, all right. Hang on. That's, I well, would yeah, argue that uh, is not true and we're going to get there. We're going to get, we're going to get there. Let's, let's segue, but without an actual segue. This is the yeah. end of the Hi intro. Dave. Thanks for the music. All right. If it's not clear, we're going to be talking about Oppenheimer on this show, mostly. Um, um, you know what? That no, is no not Brahms. much of a thing no anymore. No Brahms in this movie. Not a lot of nope. Brahms. Yeah, they lost. Nope. Nolan separated from Zimmer, and we lost. He the got Brahms. together Maybe with Ludwig Gordonson. It's a different vibe.
and, and, and maybe cuck the hell out of Zimmer. <laughs> That's not true. Zimmer got tired. Don't you think? He, he's tired know. of Nolan, or do you think Nolan got tired of Zimmer? Fifteen to twenty different. He's under the dunes. Year, I guess he's riding the dunes right now. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you guys about Nolan before we actually talk about Oppenheimer because I. For a long time, he was the Batman director. I was reading old articles from 2010 about... Do you guys know that Christopher Nolan has a third brother, Matthew Nolan? Yes, we know. I just read about this today. We're not going to talk about that. We're not going to talk about his murder. He wasn't convicted of murder. He was just incarcerated and then tried to Alleged. Alleged. It was an alleged murder. They didn't have sufficient evidence for Matthew Nolan's murder case in Costa Rica or whatever. But listen, in that time, Nolan was the Batman director. He was the Batman... Guy, so much Batman has happened since Christopher Nolan made Batman Begins, I, Dark Knight, Dark Knight Rises. I do want to say yeah. that just just if anyone else we'll out there about uh, Nolan and his murders. feels the same way, no, that I just I never thought of you never called Nolan him the Batman as the the Batman guy because You're I above was that. because you were I am above that. I am you don't like the Dark Knight of art. I am culture. a better person than anyone who uh, <laughs> this is really what is I want to get at, and maybe listening to the show. But no, I was. Uh, really sort of activated by magazines like Entertainment Weekly about this little movie called Memento in 2001 and was counting down the days until I could go into New York and see it at like the Lincoln Plaza Cinemas or the Angelica or whatever the fuck. Um, And uh, I did. And it left a strong impression on me. And he was henceforth the Memento guy. Uh, He had a very clear identity in my head long before... Even Batman after the Dark Knight, he was still the Memento guy. Well, once he was yeah. the Memento guy, you know the the Batman felt the Batman stuff felt like uh, ancillary. It felt like it was the thing that was pulling him away. Well, he, he also made Inception in the midst of the Batman. Right, he was always well, okay. going back and forth between Batman. So, uh, yes, but I mean, he was he was definitely uh, his full identity wasn't fully known to us at that point, but uh, he was definitely never the Batman guy to me, and he, I think, never wanted to be known as the Batman guy, as you guys both pointed out, he made a point of doing a sort of one for them, one for me, in a very and like, this is this doesn't really oh, happen the anymore pres- the prestige was between Batman against Dark Knight, and it should be yeah, very right? clear, the ones he's doing it for, it, he's been working, he works at Warner Brothers for almost his whole career, which is gonna be something I want to talk about at the at the end of this uh, little segment. I also he's doing one for Warner Brothers with DC yeah. movies, and then one for Warner Brothers. Hey, and I that, still get to that make Inception. Is, Wait, that Dave, is partially what pause, allowed what him to. Just oh no, that was my. He did. Now David he did. can interrupt okay. me. Uh, okay. And and Katie, this is like a Christopher <laughs> Nolan episode, so it's not really big on like letting thoughts finish fully. And <laughs> yeah, we're jumping between timelines here. David's um, actually already in the Oppenheimer review, and I'm still talking so. about early Nolan career. <laughs> but. And working at Vision, the Warner Brothers fusion. allowed him to go, you know, to do the one for me, one one for them, as clearly and cleanly as he did. Uh, and you don't really see anything like this, where it was, like, well-established, the pattern, you know, as, as quickly as it could be. I mean, he only made three Batman movies, but um, it was clear, you know, that he would make a movie, he would make The Dark Knight, he would make another movie that was unrelated, and then he would return to finish the trilogy. Uh, and he did just that, and both the movies that he made... You know, between those Batman films were so much more exciting than any of the Batman films to me. Um, and I think have left a, I don't know, of a deeper. I mean, Dark Knight was obviously a very influential film. And we can talk about um, sort of the evils that the success of his Batman trilogy may have unleashed <laughs> upon the world when we get to the Oppenheimer segment. But uh, the, I mean, those were more 
exciting to me. But the thing I really want to point out just about his overall filmography is when you talk about someone who is big into sort of machinery and rhythms and, and clockwork precision, that ever since finishing uh, the Batman movies, and there was a, he was all, he already had Interstellar ready to go. I mean, he had that script ready and he, he shot that two years later and it was released two years later after Dark Knight Rises. But ever since Interstellar came out, he has made a film without fail every three years. And I, you know, strikes notwithstanding, who knows how long these things are going to go on. I can all but guarantee you he's going to be back in theaters with a new movie in the summer of 2026. The man is a machine. Uh, 2014, Do we know? 17, We don't know what his next movie is, though, right? No, no we, idea. Okay. And, uh, and I'm not sure he could. Hasn't he been on the circuit during Oppenheimer saying, I'm not going to work during oh, really? the strike? I, oh, there is well, no yeah. doubt in my he mind can't. that he, he <laughs> has, um, at the very least, an idea ready to go. He'll be puzzling I mean, it sure. out. This is a guy, you look mm. at pictures of him at like slam dance in the late 90s, and even on his face, I mean, obviously this is a lot of projection going on here, but it's like, I swear you can see him already sort of uh, tossing around ideas for, for movies for decades to come. Like, he is locked and loaded with, with things that he wants to make, and he has no shortage of, of script ideas, I'm sure, ready to go. Well, that's what I find find interesting, and what I want to kind of like tee up our Oppenheimer chat a little bit with with Nolan. We we got into his past here, but I think present day Nolan is so interesting. One because I I basically forgot that Tenet happened. Um, that Dunkirk was so monumental to me, and I'm not sure how the two of you feel about it. I'm sure, Love we Dunkirk. talked about it on this podcast. Dunkirk. Yeah, oh, Dunkirk. Uh, peak Nolan, oh. perhaps. Um, which I was just flipping, I was watching a bits of it on, on Netflix, and uh, again, jumping between times, you can really dip into that, that movie, even though it's high drama, and uh, but then, then Tenet happens, and Tenet happens during the pandemic, and like, it's kind of a lost movie, even though I think most people who are into Nolan have now seen it, probably not a lot of people have seen it in theaters, but he just had this, like, mega-sized personal blockbuster full of his obsessions, and and it's convoluted, but that's the joy for people. And, and Ted is a weird-ass movie that I think has gained cult status and, and become part of the, of the Nolan myth. Like, it's good that he has a movie that no one has seen. It's somehow part of his puzzling uh, mythos. Um, but I, I, I'm wondering where you think he's, he's at, because I'm both um, fascinated that he is... For me, he's like a Wes Anderson. I keep thinking about Wes Anderson and Nolan. Being kind of the same, like David, you were you were just talking about um, him back in the '90s, and he, like he's been around for a really long time. And both him and Anderson, as they've gone forward, have become more consumed. Sounds like a pejorative, but like they're digging deeper into the way that they want to make movies. And they're becoming they, more themselves. They're becoming more themselves, and to an advantage. I think of someone like Tim Burton. I think of someone like Tim Burton, who seems to have known exactly the kind of movies he wanted to make right off the bat in the 80s, and then ran out of movies, and then just started doing hack work for like 20 years of just, I don't know, I'm out of stories I care about, just give me Dumbo or whatever. And clearly... Or like Spielberg, who like changes so much over the course of his career. Sure, like you, you could see either. him having phases or something. Yeah. Um, whereas I think Nolan and, and Wes Anderson are, are still digging deeper into what they really care about. It's amazing to see them getting more personal and getting more obsessed with the way that they want to make the movies. Um, but is Nolan his own worst enemy? Did he create, like, we kind of tease this here, with all the, the Dark Knights of the Batman, like, 
he's now on this campaign where he has to go out every time he makes a movie and be like, IMAX cameras, they're amazing. Going to the movies, it's important. But like, is, did he destroy something too? Is, is he the Oppenheimer of, of, of movies? Am I getting way too galaxy brain about this? Like, what well, is Nolan? Where is this blame man right him. now? It's kind of crazy to blame him for the <laughs> state of superheroism yes. when Dark Knight came out the same year as <laughs> Iron Man. Like, I think we've all been pretty clear that, like, the Dark Knight was this, was the bigger hit in 2008, or the bigger, like, cultural phenomenon in 2008. But Iron Man is the one that actually set the template for everything that came after this. I don't, I'm not sure what you put at Nolan's feet other than making people take superhero movies seriously. You can blame him for Joker. If well, you want to do that, I think yeah, everyone people... wanted to make superhero movies because of the Dark Knight, and everyone was. I mean, think, that's uh, what gets like, uh, um, like Sundance film, like gets Clojure to commence to make a superhero movie like that. Like it convinces like real directors I only to in, like a do butterfly it. effect sort of way. I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's if the connection is that direct, um, but I, I think, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I do think that. We can't just uh, skip past the idea of, of making people take superhero movies seriously and giving the, that genre its legitimacy. Um, you know, that, that did a lot. But, you know, in Patches, when you're talking about Nolan being his own worst enemy, I mean, I think this is a guy who delights in proselytizing about the theatrical experience. I mean, nobody wants to have the burden on their shoulders of feeling like if this, this movie is not a hit if people don't turn out for it. Um, you know, Hollywood's foundation is going to be even more shaken than it already is, but I think he certainly enjoys, you know, getting out there and making TikToks about IMAX. Um, and I'm sorry, he has is, Christopher Nolan been making TikToks about IMAX? I have Chris, not Christopher Nolan. I did not know this either. Oh, Christopher oh, no. Nolan, and, I, and so famously would be probably oh, the wrong no. guy for Peter, yeah. but sort of semi-notoriously in certain film circles, participated in a TikTok a few weeks ago um, okay. where some famous, or some prominent film TikToker uh, was given an exclusive tour of, uh, or like Nolan took him around a multiplex and into an IMAX theater and talked him through what makes IMAX 70 millimeter what it is and showed him clips of Oppenheimer. Right. And yeah, he was, he that was a big TikTok moment. That's a great idea. Good for you, um, Nolan. Yeah, I got no beef with it. Uh, but uh, there were memes. It was funny. We all had a lot. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely funny. It's uh, like when you see pictures of Martin Scorsese with his dog on his daughter's Instagram. Like, sure. that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but um, the, yeah, I mean, but as far as Nolan being his own worst enemy, I mean, like, Nolan is whatever, whatever uh, legacy the Dark Knight hath wrought, Nolan is one of the few people who is uh, completely unaffected by it. I mean, he has carte blanche right. wherever he goes. He's just he's fighting, fighting a tooth and nail over him. Um, and he has one of the only people alive who has the power to say, I don't know, I want an 11 mile. 70 millimeter print of my new movie and can only play in 20 theaters on earth and you know by god by damn it's gonna be in all of them and and uh, now it's universal not warner brothers i mean significantly he the the hbo max pandemic run burned the bridge like no what was his quote about it do you have it like what he said about like i'd rather be on the the worst they went from being like the best studio to the worst streaming platform or something yeah, like that. It, was, it wasn't um, Zaslav though. That was pre-discovery. Oh, it was, it was pre-Zaslav. It was yeah. whoever who was. He in just Arjun? feels like the anti-Zaslav. Um well there's Walter Hamada's DC. Yeah, I forget well, who. I mean, no. Zaslav is not a character who I have ever in I have any interest in ever defending in my life, but he uh he does or has at least, you know, given lip service to support for theatrical which is more than you can say about some others but uh no fuck him um but i don't know if 
I, I, I don't know if, I mean, I'm not especially interested in where Christopher Nolan ends up as long as one studio is willing to give him the money that he needs yeah. and support him. Um, but it is, I don't know. I, I didn't think it was all that strange seeing Oppenheimer open with the universal fanfare. You know, it's it, far more Pavlovian for me is the syncope uh, logo that follows. Um, and, uh, you know, Warner Brothers got their own big movie this weekend. And you can see the Warner Brothers shield in hot pink before Barbie. Um, <laughs> so hopefully everybody wins. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, he he's definitely... His his fixations, the way that he structures films, the way that he thinks about cinematic like cinematic time, um, and the flow of time in his movies, um, the sort of symphonic nature of how he stitches them together, it, it is a lot more idiosyncratic than a Steven Spielberg film, for example. And so I do think that like the while Oppenheimer is definitely more of a pivot for him than I had argued Tenet was. Um, you know, Tenet feeling more like an iteration of the kind of action movie, high, super, super, super high concept uh, gambles that he was doing. Oppenheimer, while continuing, you know, so many of the aesthetic and structural gambits that he's become known for, you know, moving into a historical drama, something that really you know feels like a biopic, a courtroom drama. All these things is is definitely new for him, but it's still you know, you know, inexorably feels like a Christopher Nolan movie, whereas Someone like Steven Spielberg um, has a little bit of a wider range, but I don't hold that against Christopher Nolan because there's only one Christopher Nolan. It's the same reason I don't hold it against Wes Anderson. I agree with, you know, your the way that you surmised it earlier. Is like, yeah, he's digging deeper into the things that animate him about telling stories and making films. Um, and, you know, I think that continues to be rewarding in the same way. I mean, I think you know, I got a lot more out of Wes Anderson's new movie than I did out of Christopher Nolan's, but I still think that... Um, it's a wonderful thing that these artists are able to paint things that only they could on the scale and the canvas that they're given. And I wouldn't want Christopher Nolan to have to, you know, be an ersatz version of someone else and pretend to not be him anymore. I mean, he's like the like the god who comes down from Mount Rushmore to like tell people they fucked up, isn't he? Like he wasn't <laughs> one of the people who was yelling about TCM, right? That was Scorsese. No, and he was not PTA part of that who was the third person? Spielberg. He doesn't um, get he doesn't get American cable in London. <laughs> well, also, like I feel like he is the last person who should like who David Zaslav would like want to listen to. Like that he doesn't want is, people to watch television. That's true. He wants to watch on the biggest screen no. possible. Do you guys think so? Like I haven't watched Tenet since 2020. I guess I don't have like the fondest memories of it. Like I I'm sure it can't be his worst film because The Dark Knight Rises is kind of tortured for all these different reasons. But like. Is it kind of the oh. best thing possible for him that uh, that <laughs> Tenet came out in the pandemic and we all kind of willingly forgot it because it's such a mess? Or I think do you guys have was, higher opinions uh, of it? That was kind of serendipitous. Like, it is one of... I, I mean, I know that there are the real Tenet heads out there who sort of get off on saying shit like temporal pincer movements. And, uh, <laughs> the only thing know. I remember about the movie is that one of the guys likes Coca-Cola. Like, do they order Coca-Cola in that? That's that's the foggiest. Uh, I think that is but, true. I mean, there's a lot right There's a lot to enjoy about Tenet, and it is, uh, it is you know, nothing if not a big-ass Christopher Nolan movie that's wacky as hell and completely inexplicable. I will never forget interviewing Robert Pattinson like a year before Tenet came out. I think while he was in the middle of shooting it or he just wrapped his part. And like, you know, just he was even like off the record. I can't remember, like trying to goad him into saying anything about what the movie was about. And he basically looked at me and he was like, mate, if I knew, I would tell you. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and uh, once I saw the movie, I was like, oh, that checks out. Um, yeah. Kenneth yeah, Brennan's got a wacky accent in that one, too, doesn't he? 
Oh, he sure does. The wackiest. I mean, really, yeah. even by Kenneth Branagh standards. The Oppenheimer uh, like accent that, felt pretty normal, yeah. honestly. But Tenet, like, you know, I, I thought that Inception, one of the things that I find so rewarding about that movie is that it's all nonsense, but, like, they, they set up the rules, and I think if you sort of pick up what they're putting down about how this all works and are willing to sort of learn on the fly, which, of course, you know, Nolan loves to throw out the rule book as soon as he's painstakingly established the rules, it's rewarding because you have the... The, the like galvanizing fun of putting together why X is happening because of Y and like understanding and having those synapses, you know, fire in your head because you are putting like he leads you to the water and you get the fun of drinking and in Tenet, you know, I'm watching it and I'm feeling minute by minute like, OK, I think I understand how this is going to work. I think I understand it's going to work. And suddenly I'm like, I have no fucking idea what's happening and I don't <laughs> know how anyone could. And I'm willing to surrender to that. Like I had a fun time watching Tenet. Um, when uh, came out in a dark Sim- time, and all of yeah, our David lives. Sims and I, it Sims like on Atlanta the Atlantic's dime for 150 bucks, which is you know when you're talking about like getting a couple of people in there, it's not a huge extravagance. Um, rented a theater up in Connecticut, and we drove up and watched it in a private screening, you know, in the interest of avoiding COVID because this was in September 2020. of 2020. Um, and I was glad that I did it, but like. John David Washington can't really carry that movie. Uh, you know, um, Pattinson's having a lot of fun. By the time you get to the big fucking time is going in two directions, chases, and the finale where Sean Avery, former New York Rangers player, shows up for now the first of two appearances in Christopher Nolan's movies. <laughs> You're going to have um, to tell me I, how he's in Oppenheimer because I, I I missed that part. Oh, he when I tell you, when I remind you who he played, you will know exactly. Uh, but... Um, I was just, you know, I was so overwhelmed by trying to figure out what was happening that, you know, it, it finally at the very end when he's having that conversation with Pattinson, they're talking about how this is the start of a beautiful friendship. I was like, oh, okay, I sort of rock the big picture here. But um, yeah, I think that's one that's the rare Nolan movie where the concept sort of overwhelms um, the fun that is to be had from it. Uh, did you finally remember Tenet? I, I do not fondly remember Ted. I remember being in a blur, <laughs> and I had to watch it at home. I really do want to see it in a theater one day. I know yeah, that Al- Alamo's like been playing it, but um, I, I do hope I get that chance. Here, here's my wrap-up question on Nolan before we get to the main event, Oppenheimer. Um, I, I do think a few years ago, the cult of Nolan was like really strong. Nolan was the film bro, and he, it was like a joke that if you were into Nolan, you're probably just like a bro. Um, now maybe Zack Snyder took over that online a little bit. Like Nolan may have escaped film bro culture through some of the art that he's made. I w- or maybe not. I, I guess my question is, has he earned the cult, or like is he in a different? place now what's his reputation i think is, has he transcended is out of new, whatever he was i, I think denis oh, villeneuve is the new nolan of like five or ten years ago because i do think that nolan has by virtue of his uh you know unparalleled commitment to these zany super high concepts the integrity of his filmmaking how experiment i mean experimental is a loaded word but i do think you know even someone like david borwell will talk about um, you know, the way that Nolan incorporates experimentalism into these blockbuster, these blockbuster experiences. And he continues to do that and push the envelope in his own way. Uh, his subjects have been gotten increasingly, although not necessarily uh, uh, consistently more serious, but, you know, Tenet comes in between Dunkirk and Oppenheimer. But 
you know, he is making something with the gravity of, uh, of an Oppenheimer um, to a lesser extent. Dunkirk. I mean, I think it does demand a sort of greater degree of respect, particularly how well he pulls them off. Um, I think his virtuosity is so much more than just bombast and it's appealing to an audience so much wider than just people who are going to turn out for Blade Runner 2049 that I do think he's sort of been accepted by a greater you know, portion of the film world and the i'm sure that the film bros such as they are must still love him he's given them no reason not to but i i think that they have claimed denis villeneuve more as mm. belonging to them whereas christopher nolan is kind of uh and i love this about christopher nolan for the masses because it, it is amazing the movies that he is able to i mean oppenheimer being chief among them that he is able to drive uh, you know the masses out to go see i mean watching oppenheimer yeah. something i thought about time and time and time again is how insane it was that this movie was going to earn like 40 or 50 million dollars its opening weekend i mean it's this going to do well dour yeah. as fuck three hour talky as fuck uh historical drama about men sitting in rooms and arguing about physics uh, and it's not and... because of the movie stars which it is loaded with it is because of nolan yeah mm-hmm. yeah i mean he is definitely a, a bigger draw than any of them um, yep. and he's yeah. maybe he's probably literally the only person who could make this movie and yet work. Katie this is your court like he's not an Oscar guy he's not like huge guy he's not he, it's, he's in a really interesting spot well Spielberg got disrespected by the Oscars for a really long time before they finally got on board I mean Dunkirk got a whole bunch of nominations um, I don't that was his first director it nomination it won for like sound and visual effects I think yeah, but was that? There is, yeah, yeah, Katie, you're the Oscar excerpt, but I do you feel like mm-hmm. you know, based on where we are in the year and with the strikes compounding and whatnot, it feels like a done deal that he is at least going to be nominated for best director for this movie. I would think so. Yeah, I mean, it's the the year ahead is long. I don't know what the strike is going to do for anything. I mean, we'll talk we'll talk about this maybe, but like I was, I saw Killers of the Flower Moon earlier this summer, and then seeing this, I'm just like, we Brag. get these three huge honking three-hour american history projects from these two directors that really aren't much alike as movies but just like that's gonna be fun i'm just excited to have them both you know there. the winners here are high schoolers on uh the last week of of school like the movie days or on rainy days or when teachers give up uh-huh uh, when you these, you watch, oh my these God. movies are gonna get huge so yeah, how is oppenheimer won... gonna play on a tube tv that's on a cart <laughs> Uh, you they still do, that. do they still have overhead projectors? Can you <laughs> run it there? Uh, D- uh. Dunkirk won sound mixing and editing because those were still two categories back then, and editing. Um, I wonder how many Nolan movies have won editing. Tell us in the next segment because we're we're moving okay. on. We're going to now talk about Oppenheimer. No one says it like that, but we're are you saying that the way that like Hitler would have if he had met? Oppenheimer? <laughs> <laughs> I was not doing Hitler. Stop it. <laughs> We're starting Oppenheimer with the Oppenheimer game, which is how many people can you remember who are in Oppenheimer? Who's starting? Katie, right, you go I'll, first. I, I, Katie, oh, kick us off with, okay. with Killian Murphy. Let's go. My next? Yeah. 
David said right, Killian Murphy. Go, now you go. I gotta go. I gotta go in order. Or I'm gonna get too confused. Emily okay, Blunt. Emily Blunt. Well, I'm gonna go with Florence Pugh, the, uh, yeah, the other well, woman. Well, there's, uh, there's three. Nope, there's one more. Yeah, I will go with Matthew Damon. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. Mm, he is in it. Uh, I'm gonna go with Jason Clark, who is also interrogating mm. Oppenheimer throughout this movie. Sure. Big name. I'm gonna go with uh, David Crumholt. Mm. The MVP of the movie, I would the say. The greatest. Uh, I'm going from Jason Clark to Tony Goldwyn. Okay. There are so many actors in this who have also directed movies. I find that fascinating mm. about Nolan. He seems to... Which I will name Macon Blair, someone else in the interrogation mm. room, which is probably too look, deep a cut for this game right now. Uh, I know. Um, I looked him up afterwards because I knew I recognized him from something. I, I'll go with Dane DeHaan. Who, what are you eating right now? Stop, get, stop having, chewing cud. Listen, this is a throwback. This is a... Um, what do you call it? A flashback, a throwback, a callback, callback, callback to last week's episode where I had a hacking cough. And uh, guess what? I still do. I'm having a throat lozenge. Um, okay. I'm, Dane DeHaan. Dane I'm going Dawn. with Tom Conti as Albert Einstein. Wow. That's fabulous. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Who am I going to go with? I, well, I'll go with the third female uh lead i wouldn't call her lead olivia thurlby back in the movies here back from the yeah so many people in this movie were like fx why the last man second bill speaking of people who are back uh so many people i gotta go with my boy joshua hartnett he is back baby uh i'm going to try and name every josh in the movie (laughs) oh okay josh peck done you go. You got it okay that was the only other one that i could uh remember uh you know i was with a bunch of people seeing this movie who could not recognize who plays harry truman in the movie for one scene no, oh gary God. oldman is in this that movie. would be gary okay. oldman it is it is a, the gary oldman is gary oldman performance I from the darkest hour since the last to the uh, another dark hour <laughs> boy uh what a scene that is a little a little goofy for for my taste, uh, I will go with David Dasmaklian. Oh, oh yeah, Dasmaklian. Mm-hmm. No one loves that coat. guy. Yeah, he was a uh, David Dasmaklian. I can't say his name. Was it, he was a Dark Knight, right? That was like he's in Dark Knight. I don't know if he's in a movie, but I remember him. Yeah. I remember yeah. him from uh, from Dark Knight. No one um, looks you named, out. You named one of the best actor winners in this cast, who's in a scene or two, and I'll name another one: Casey Affleck. Oh, yes, that's a bit of a surprise. I don't know. By the yeah, way, we're going to go full spoilers. The fact we're that Casey Affleck is in the cast is... Yeah, yeah, I, I, well, I, they I do They do position his back for several moments. Like, it's a reveal that's that true. Casey Affleck is a movie. They do. And we're going to talk do, about how they use Star, the star Power in this movie, voice, though. Yeah. You're like, okay, that's Casey Affleck. Yeah. That's Casey, yeah. But I want to flag right now, we're going to go just all in on this. Do our listeners know that when they tested the atomic bomb... Um, they did not literally destroy the world. I mean, you can make a case yep. as this movie sort of does that they figuratively destroyed. I mean, the, world. the, the, the but, movie does uh, make the, the case in its final moments. Not, I would say the atmosphere did not catch on fire. I did not realize that that was a concern. That was fascinating yeah. to learn. That is an interesting okay. part. All right, uh, patches, don't stall. Still Benny Safty is in yeah. the another Benny actor Safdie. directing movies. He is so Who, sweaty, just a sweaty he, man. He is in so and much then, more of the movie than I ever would have guessed. Pulls off that actor. I mean, he. Oh yeah, he has quite an accent in this movie. Big, he also lot pulls of off in this movie. oiling his whole face with sunscreen at some point when the <laughs> when the Trinity test is going off, and he is just the slimiest, mm-hmm. like physically, <laughs> um, literally slimy. I will, uh, as I alluded to earlier, maybe in a previous segment, go with former New York Ranger Sean Avery, who Katie <laughs> he plays 
the guy who is essentially like doing the countdown to the Trinity test. He's on the phone in a little wooden hut. Is he the guy who runs out to watch it? No, he's no. on the phone and he's like, like calling back to the, he's one that's oh, doing like four minutes, okay. three minutes. Got um, it. Yeah. That is fascinating. Um, okay. And maybe the third best actor winner, Rami Malek. Oh boy. Who I thought was going to have no lines of the movie and then comes in in the, in the was, last like sure 20. <laughs> he's got those eyes, those, those big eyes, big eyes. Mm-hmm. He, he he you remember him. You see him for a second. You're like, Hey, you're going to, you're going to be back. Aren't you? He like trips and falls. I'm like, you're really, is this a goof on the biopic? Uh, is this a skewer? There's a big one. There's a big one that we haven't gotten to yet. Yeah, there's oh, a couple. Well, I was going to go with Michael Agorano. Is that how you pronounce his sure. last name? Uh, yeah. uh, another heard... guy back in the movies, you know, like I haven't... missed him. I don't I didn't see him. He's I know just I one of he the scientists. It. Yeah. He was so holding I, drinks I during their party with Han Solo himself. The only actor to ever oh. play that role. Alden Ehrenreich. <laughs> so good. He's really good in this movie. movie. Really good. Is and I he, think he's... I mean. He has a I lot of charisma. He's, he's sparred he with Robert Downey Jr. He plays Jr. that role as well as any human being on Earth could play that role. Do I that. think that role needed to be in the movie? Maybe Yes. Not. Really? Uh, he's he's like, the only fictional character in the movie. Oh, really? Like, every single other person is a real person. He gives us just the exposition we need, like, the, the nudge towards narration in this uh, movie, the, the framework. I will, people don't... Yeah, well, well... I will float the idea later in the segment that the entire Robert Downey Jr. thread of this movie... Maybe should have been cut. But. Come on, oh, you're like Amadeus. Be, These are rivals. Be, These are angry so men. Wrong. It's not a shame. You'll be I so wrong. I uh, don't really love Amadeus. Uh, uh, the really? big one. I thought. Oh, okay. Hang on. We had a lot to deal with here. Uh, <laughs> I'm invested in winning this game. I know you love um, a game. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> the big one that I thought David was going to say, and it's big, and it's an accent. It's Kenneth Branagh. Sure is. Oh yeah, Niels Bohr. That's Niels Bohr. He's doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, then I'll go with. Uh, in those early Niels Bohr scenes, we get another Nolan vet who I only remember he was a Nolan vet because he's in, I was watching bits of Dunkirk. James D'Arcy is in this movie. Sure. Playing oh, Oppenheimer's yeah. teacher who almost gets poisoned by an oh, apple. that's who he is. I, I don't remember, I never remember what James D'Arcy looks that's like. From, he, that's from, that's, man, this movie rips me. a lot from the book. I guess ripping the book is, is adapting the book, but there's <laughs> a lot of really in this movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah, facts of what happened. Um, wow. I, your sources. I am going to go with uh, a guy. His name's Roderick. He rules. It's Devin Bostick. Wow. Ooh. From uh, the fucking bully movies. You he's know? in Roderick, the Diary of a Wimpy Kid. How he do is, you know he's this? He's Roderick, or he's the Diary <laughs> no of a Wimpy Kid. I don't know. Who, play, who is that? Is that his brother? Is that No, he's, the, no, he's one of the guys brother? in Los Alamos. Oh, one of the scientists. Um, yeah, I would like to throw out whoever plays Frank Oppenheimer, but I don't remember the name of that actor but i do remember jack quaid double nepo baby playing oh, sure. richard Feynman. he's good another one of the scientists uh i'm gonna go with one of the silent but still since every actor in this is known james urbaniak shows up mm-hmm. to play some scientist where he's just standing in a forest hanging with Einstein, looking at trees it's great <laughs> Also, James Urbaniak hey, called me and he was like, "Hey, David, you want to stand in the forest and not speak for a day, and uh, you'll be as, an as we say, sure." Mentioned earlier in the podcast, like this is a Jewish film in a, in a major way, well, and we Urbaniak will, we'll is, is connecting us to the Fablemans here. He's the the continuity over, over the major well, like Jewish cinema in the last few Jews years. in the forties and fifties in the desert of the American Southwest. It's very specific. Although that. I guess that scene I, is I would not make in the a case, as I did in my. My very long-winded uh, sleep-deprived review of the film, 
that well i don't know if this this argument may actually be too sort of abstract and uh bizarre to to coherently make on this podcast but i sort of sort of making a case that it was his fablemans his roma his empire of light because oppenheimer as a person is sort of the the big bang of i think what the dc universe originated christopher nolan's obsessions um the kind of characters that tend to populate these stories these men who are caught between the emotional world and the mathematical world and um, struggling to understand the, the meaning of their own actions uh, on sort of a cosmic scale. I think that Christopher like Oppenheimer mm. sort of invented Christopher Nolan um, as we know him. Um, and so I think, I don't think you're ever going to see Christopher Nolan make something as explicitly autobiographical uh, about his childhood as some of those other movies that I mentioned. But I Inception do think this was, is sort of his was supposed to be that, that movie, right? Isn't yeah, that, I, was, I, I always think of Inception claim. about being him as a dad um, more than as a child. Oh, fair. But he, fair. he did make a movie that I guess you could call his Full Metal Jacket. Uh, and I bring that up because uh, another person who makes it, who appears in Oppenheimer, I would guess the tallest member of the cast, Matthew Modine. <laughs> oh, yes. Matthew Modine. Oh, that room. Oh, okay. I got one. Still in the chamber here. Matthew Modine is another one I had face blindness too, but I figured it out afterward. Uh, I'm throwing out another Nepo baby, uh, Gustav Skarsgård, one of those, oh, wow. uh, who is one of the Whoa. scientists. I didn't. He's know one of the that. ones with an accent. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with James Raymar, who plays the war mm -hmm. secretary of war, who has an amazing scene in this movie where they're deciding one of the most chilling, disturbing, my gut turned, like them deciding to where to. Drop the bombs in Japan, and he says, "Not Kyoto, because that's where I took my honeymoon." I uh, disgusting, but amazing delivery there. Uh, yeah, yeah. Too um, many actors. I I think I only have one more that I can pull here uh, from Hereditary, number twenty three. Damn it! Alex Damn it. Wolf. Now Alex Wolf was was next on my list. All right, you guys are gonna tell me if this is cheating or not. Flora Nolan, yes. Of oh, that boy. Nolan's wow. is uh, You're credit. She's you are desperate. In when he's imagining the crowd full of people getting their faces melted off, she's the girl getting her face mm. melted off. Oh no, that's a good pull. There's someone I can't name by name. The um, German blonde guy from Army of the Dead. Heisenberg. Um, the guy who plays Heisenberg. Yes, mm, I don't. I don't, I don't think, know uh, his name. No, I don't. Blonde guy from Army of the Dead. <laughs> <laughs> I can't I, I name so. him. I, I oh god oh, let's no. see are there any scientists oh, no. left are there yeah, I any think you're gonna win by default because patches is not gonna make a poll here and i am fresh out of names okay. I, I honestly like i think we might have done it like i'm gonna pull up imdb right <laughs> now there i don't other humans in the cast that appear <laughs> in front of the camera in the film. is there anyone in the congress or the uh no one plays jfk a real missed opportunity i would say no although i'm you know, for I'm, those of you out there who have not seen the film, I will not say anything more. Uh, JFK, his name is invoked at a certain point in the movie, and boy, did my eyes roll. Uh, anyway. We said Crumholtz, right? Away. One more, yeah, we said yeah, Crumholtz. I'm, I'm on IMDb now. I'm just, I'm I have no idea. This... No, I'm, I'm, I'm out. I think you won, Katie. Right. Well, this I think is, we've, you we've won sufficiently... <laughs> Congratulations. We've sufficiently <laughs> given our listeners an idea of just of how scope ridiculously here. deep this cast is. We're truly Three hour like, movie. You have James Urbaniak playing an extra, effectively. And Robbie Malik has two lines. I mean, like, they, uh, they're no well, expense. Well, what did you make it's of this? It's a hundred million dollar movie that takes place in about three rooms. As, as alluded to, this movie adapts American Prometheus, a tome that 
I've read half of. Katie, did you make it through? We've been talking about this all summer. Oh, you did. I've been rereading it because I've been writing various pieces Holy for up and we did a book club about it on Little Gold Men, so I'm very enmeshed in the book at this point. It's a it's a huge, dense text where I I you know, you could spend three hundred pages just reading about him going to college. Um, and writing erotic poetry and trying to get except with that's also where you get the poison apple, which is that's an important part of the movie. Apple. You can't skip it. Is it. I mean, okay. We, I mean, I don't know if, if we're ready to go piece by piece here, but no, we're not. We just not started. American, no, but it's like as someone who's not read American Prometheus because I hit my quota of books to read in a year with Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, I I really did not understand the thing about the poison apple and it really threw me and I couldn't understand why it was included in the movie. I understood that it was something that, that happened for the fans. The kind of, right. It didn't feel like (laughs) the kind of detail that they would have invented for the movie, but I believe so. The the beginning of the movie is where you get the most of those like very subjective kind of dreamy visions of like particles floating around in space and the, uh, you know, the water droplets and all this stuff. And in the book, it kind of explains how he went through like a real like depressive episode. Like he was in a really bad place in his life and his youth. And I think that is less important than just the idea of this guy with like these huge thoughts about an invisible world world floating around in his head and how ill-equipped that made him to deal with the real world, which is where the poison apple comes in. Like he just like he's like a kid lashing out like he didn't couldn't come up with something better. And then he meets Neil Spore and it kind of sets him on a path to be able to channel all of this stuff. Yeah, that's I don't that's think where the it movie... meant something to me within the movie. It does a lot of bricklaying in this way, but what it does emphasize and what is surprising about this movie, and there's just so much to it. I mean, Nolan made a three-hour movie, and you would expect it to be robust and with with facts and and kind of biopic, linear, maybe linear storytelling from where he came from and how he made the bomb. But obviously, it's as we discussed, it's it's cross-cutting. It's cross-cutting at a rapid pace. There's just a tremendous amount of like storytelling going on in the movie and yet it doesn't lose track of the humanity what i was really surprised is that it's a highly sexual film and that like i think is it i think yeah i think the sexuality i mean i think his sexuality is really movies on screen i think makes it it's not just that it's not just that it's that oppenheimer the prestige it's that oppenheimer the way clay murphy plays him is has like people problems he can't communicate correctly in the beginning like the fact that he would attempt to poison his teacher uh when he was in college is disturbing and he he cannot speak correctly now i don't think there's enough bricklaying there but like he is obviously overcompensating and in love with the fact that he can romance women and he can romance students uh, or you know with science and he is a people person Mm. and i think almost to a fault where he's like overcompensating for this youth that he had where he couldn't communicate with people. And then now that he can, that he has quantum physics in order to enlighten the minds of, of these, these followers that he has, he, he can't say no to anything. He can't say no to women and he can't say no to science. Um, and, and he's not perceptive he can't enough. say no to the bomb. And he's not perceptive enough to know when he's pissing off the wrong people, which is where the second half of the movie comes in, where he's like making fun of people to their face and like doesn't realize how much he's right. screwing himself over. It is a very character driven movie that's cut like a huge, that's cut like Dunkirk or cut like Tenet. I was thinking a lot about Tenet, <laughs> whatever I could remember, not of the plot, but of the, <laughs> of the feeling of watching Tenet. Uh, it, is, it is definitely a summer movie that belongs in a July slot do you guys interesting i mean how, how do you feel about 
the filmmaking. Why, as David, as you mentioned, like maybe Nolan is really attached to this. This is a personal, almost biographical film for him. But like in execution, do you understand why he's making this movie? Do you understand why he's making the choices? Does it oh. coalesce, even if it doesn't sound like you were all that I into would... it? I would like to think that I that I understand why he was making this movie. I mean, that doesn't seem to me to be much of a mystery. I mean, as I said, he is uh, really fascinated by by people, you know, emotional beings in a mathematical world. And I think, you know, Interstellar is such a skeleton key for, for Nolan and, you know, uh, this idea of, of, I was going to say Matthew Modine, the other Matthew, Matthew McConaughey flying into a black <laughs> hole and calling his daughters and having to deal with Matt Damon. I mean, a lot of these things are uh re recur in one way or another in Oppenheimer um but the uh I mean that for me is this has been integral to Nolan from the beginning um you know people trying to understand the meaning of their own actions something that you see very literally in Memento um <coughs> dealing with the different sides of themselves and using the prestige I mean like this is uh had the potential to feel like the Nolan Ur text I mean I think one of the reasons why I really expected this to sort of be his masterpiece because it felt like the purest distillation of everything that Nolan cares about as a filmmaker. I knew going in, you know, sight unseen that, that it was going to move the way that it did because this is how he makes movies. Um, there are no mm. scenes. There are really just slivers. Uh, he is constantly on the move. It's all about sort of the, the blending of these different temporalities uh, and tones that are merging together. Um, he, would it be sort of anathema to him to slow down and have like a five minute dialogue scene where you really are just in one particular point in space time for, for, uh, you know, uh, the span of a clear thought. I mean, it always has to be threading in and out of something else. Um, I think you really think that's how his movies always are. Oh yeah. I mean like this has been certainly it's only grown more. So uh, if you go back to something like the prestige is cut in a way, not wildly dissimilar from this, but it doesn't have that same sort of relentlessness. Um, mm -hmm. But by the time you get to Inception, uh, where he's really firing on all cylinders, I mean, he now makes movies where, you know, the, the entire duration of them flow like that last hour and change of Inception. Yeah, um, yeah. And, that's that's very much how Oppenheimer feels, where you're yeah, bouncing around he, timelines. And he, you know, you can go back to like um, this idea of like dialectical montage and you know, back in Eisenstein, so in the, the silent era, I mean, like that, he's really looking for the synthesis between these various um, unequal parts that he's smashing together, like an atom, I suppose, uh, or oh, various atoms. Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I you know, and this, this movie starts, you know, fission, fusion. You have two different modes and three different really points in time. You have uh, fission, which is the the bits with with. Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer growing up, effective. being a dilettante, going in to Berkeley, color. Um, in color. I mean, if you can call this color, it's uh, Hoyt Van Otema's cinematography here is it's like uh, DMV green and a few shades of brown, but it is it's in color Jeez. compared to the IMAX stock of black and white that they use for fusion, which are all of the scenes where Robert or uh, Robert Downey Jr., who's playing uh, Levi Strauss is Louis Strauss. Louis Strauss. Levi is someone else. Louis Levi Strauss, Strauss I um, believe, invented the jeans. There you go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he is not playing that Levi Strauss. Would would watch that Christopher Nolan movie. But, but it's important that it's Strauss. It's not pronounced Strauss, Strauss because yes. is he comfortable with being yes. Jewish? I don't know. Well, I mean, they are both men are Jewish, as they tell us at the beginning. You know, one the Salieri to Oppenheimer's Mozart is a Southern Jew who sort of came from nothing and sees that as potential common ground. He I, I idolizes 
um, Oppenheimer and Einstein. And then in one of the first scenes of the movie takes uh, the fact that they go off and have a private conversation to be a sort of a personal slight against him. And that is the start of the animus that he brings to bear against Oppenheimer during uh, Strauss's Senate confirmation hearing in the 50s, um, where his dealings with Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project and Oppenheimer's uh, rumored associations with the Communist Party become a big sticking point um, because Strauss is hawkish and thinks that uh, the only way to have, um, you know, the only way towards a nuclear free future is uh, sort of an arms race and to build up the biggest nu- nuclear arsenal of all. And Oppenheimer, after the bombs go off, is, you know, obviously racked with an unfathomable degree of guilt uh, and doing everything in his power. Um, and as it's presented here, is very sort of sunken, sullen way of dealing with this uh, to create a world where a third nuclear bomb never needs to go off. But um, so you have these two timelines cut between them, the Strauss is black and white. And then you also have these scenes with Nolan, with Nolan, with uh, Oppenheimer <laughs> at his security clearance um, is like sort of backroom secret meeting. Kangaroo court. Is, yeah, it's kangaroo court of sorts where his security, his Q clearance uh, is brought back up for debate. Um, because there are some people who see him as a hindrance to the kind of nuclear policy that Strauss is advocating for and, the H-bomb. Want, to stri- yeah, and want to strip him. Uh, and he's very much an outspoken opponent of the H-bomb and they want to strip him of his security clearance so that he can exert influence over that program. Uh, and so they set up this kangaroo court where the movie spends increasingly agitated and long scenes um, where Jason Clark and... Uh, the fucking the guy from the president show thank you um and a guy who looks like a dead ringer for snoke from uh <laughs> <laughs> star wars movie um uh, you know what i'm talking about uh are uh, all sort of and then they bring in all of his friends his wife uh who's played by emily blunt um you, Matt you know, Damon. to all sort of right to, to speak to his character so all these things are happening concurrently it is very much um while not dissimilar from nolan's other movies i think this approach feels even you know, strangely fitting here because it reminds me so much of Dr. Manhattan um, of Watchmen. I mean, that sort of Trophomadorian mm. fourth dimensional sense in time where it's like, you know, the year is 1942 and Oppenheimer is in Berkeley at a party meeting a girl. Uh, the year is 1953. You know what's interesting about that? The There's obviously we don't get that kind of narration or VO in the in I the was movie. providing it live for the people sitting around. <laughs> but I, I was reading a fabulous story that uh, our, our our pal Ilga Beery wrote in New York Magazine where uh, Matt Damon said that Nolan wrote the script in first person, that mm-hmm. all of yes, the Oppenheimer is description is in first person. I find that fascinating and, and well, speaks to it, kind of it, that vibe that seems to exude from it without having to, to actually do that. the VO. Yeah. The first is our dear friend Bilga, who I love, was seeing the movie for the fifth time on Monday night when I saw it. Um, <laughs> just that was a factoid that sort of blew my mind. It's three hours, um, but uh, but uh, and I just wish that I had the kind of brain that would allow me to sit through a movie, even a movie I love that many times in short succession. Um, and the second is that like patches what you, the point you're you're speaking to sort of reflects the subjectivity, which is the other major thing that he's trying to delineate in the structure of this movie, where. The color scenes are really meant to be from Oppenheimer's perspective. Um, and Which he plays with in really scenes. clever ways in that final section where we see repeated scenes that don't yeah. exactly yes. match up. He plays yep. with it infrequently. Really cool. But uh, it, yeah, it, but it is, hits when it does. 
Mm-hmm. It, it, it is something that uh, I felt mm, a, a bit overdone for my liking, and I don't know if the juice <laughs> is quite worth the squeeze in that sense. But oh, it's Christopher Nolan. I think at this point can really only make a movie if he is, you know, has all these moving parts and all these things. He needs he the can prestige, sort of like a you know? Super collider, you know, spin around at a zillion miles an hour until you arrive at that crystallized dewdrop of emotion. Or a realization that you get at the end of this movie. You say um, that like it's a bad fashion. thing. It's definitely Nobody not. Nobody else not very can fun. do a movie like this. It's not a bad thing. I I, I love. There are some Nolan. sweaty really, moments really where it's do. like, and when we'll Betty call Sappy's it most Alamos, and they're we'll... sweaty. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, know, there's a I lot really of real sweat. <laughs> Christopher Nolan, but I mean, so much of this movie. Mike Ryan and I were talking about this a lot. It reminded me of JFK, the Oliver Stone film. I mean, a lot of it, more than I think a lot of people are ready for really is just people sitting in rooms. And there is something interesting about that because, you know, the only power sort of more dangerous or, you know, as then in the atomic bomb, maybe dangerous in a different way, are, you know, impotent men sitting in dusty rooms trying to exert their power um, and play God. And we get that ad length and ad nauseum in this movie. But, you know, my main frustration with a film that I was saying to Katie before we started, like, you know, even a... Even the least effective Christopher Nolan movies, it's all graded on a curve. I mean, like, the integrity of his filmmaking, the, 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 the power of it, the, the thought that goes into it, the way that it moves, it's, it's so infinitely more interesting than 99.9% of other studio movies that you'll see this year. Uh, that everything needs to be sort of taken in context. But um, with, that, with, that having, with that being said, the stuff with uh with strauss you know you have a rather simple man who is just he's got a chip on his shoulder he does believe that his way of doing things is going to keep the world safe to some degree i mean there's some sincerity there but he is mongering for power in a very different way um clearly hasn't learned any of the lessons of the atomic bomb and there are these it's like an hour of the movie it's just alden all aaron reich like you know, I, I, I want I want to throw to Katie because I feel like she gets why this is great. These things, these things collide eventually know. in a final moment that Blight. is all bombast. It's the Nolan-esque bombast, but it's just about people talking in a room. It's Rami Malek giving a speech um, instead of like four different dreams collapsing onto each other or three different timelines in Dunkirk finally sort of overlapping. Uh, and I feel like the payoff fell completely flat for me and it's because you don't for all this talk about subjectivity and for all the time that we spend staring at Killian Murphy's beautiful face and his marble blue eyes uh, you never really see behind them I mean you never really get any insight beyond what I could have assumed sight unseen about this movie about how Oppenheimer must have felt about being involved in the Manhattan Project and how he must have felt in the aftermath and it ended up feeling very disappointingly shallow and superficial to me uh. in part because so much time is wasted on a shallow and superficial character who is this Strauss guy. But I think that contrast between Oppenheimer who you spend all this time with, and I agree that you can't get fully behind him. And I think that really comes across in the book is like, he is a guy who had a really particular brain and he did not let on a lot. And like, there were people who spent their entire lives knowing him and not really knowing what made him tick as opposed to Strauss who has all this power and like everything is exactly nakedly on the surface and is kind of, Standing in as the symbol of this entire like beginning of the Cold War power apparatus and being like, we just want to build as many weapons as we can. And we're very paranoid and very scared of anybody else. 
um, I think having him centralized in that way helps emphasize what he was up against, because I think that level of Cold War paranoia is really hard for us to understand. And I've seen like I've seen so many Twitter bad takes, which means it's hard to be old. I I was there (laughs) for what the, the Cold War. Yeah. Yeah, I'll remember it very well. Um, But so the thing about all of the timelines that I don't think I like I thought about it while reading the book. But, you know, so you're in the book, you get things like the Chevalier incident where there's a bunch of different people who say a bunch of different things and who he said what to. It gets very confusing in the book. But the way that history is told and the way that Oppenheimer's specific life played out where he has this hearing, this kangaroo court in 1954, where like it it is that kind of that Dewey Cox of like, well, you need to hear about my whole life story before I start this conversation. But like that really is what happened. That it makes sense. uh, To Nolan's credit and and (laughs) editor Jennifer Lame's credit, they don't really make it feel like that. No, they don't. Those scenes are. Yeah. A lot of those scenes I I was not fully engaged in, but it definitely doesn't feel like, okay, this is a perfect excuse for me to talk about my schooling. This is not Bohemian Rhapsody. No, uh, despite the presence of Rami Malik. But the way that history (sighs) is told and the way that a person's life is, is timelines laid on top of each other, is like an echo of someone comes up and you ping back to a point in their past or like something happens and has a ripple effect on something that happens in the future. Like it makes sense to tell history in this way. And it's not a traditional biopic format, but it kind of makes you think that like the format needed to get blown up. And like this Christopher Nolan obsession with timelines and jumping around really was a great way at getting at a life story like this. I'm with you, Katie. And and David, your point about like we already know that he feels bad, or we already know what the history is, and what we can't get behind his eyes. I I really disagree with that because I think part of it might be the IMAX camera. We got to see this movie in the, in the biggest format imaginable. I saw it in IMAX, um, but not in okay. seventy. Okay, you. When I say we, I meant you too. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> and many other people should and will. But by just keeping the camera close and and weaving these stories together, I I felt. I felt that crushing feeling that comes with watching like part of this movie it feels like a heist movie. It feels like get the team together, can mm-hmm. we build the bomb in time? And then they do the Trinity test and you see all of these scientists cheering. Like they did it. They actually accomplished this thing. And then 2 seconds later they're like, "What the fuck have we done? What have we done?" Um and you really feel that moment. You already know what the history is. But the the weight of these images that he's able to, to capture and the way that they've constructed the the back and forth narrative, like then we'll get we'll go into that interrogation with him and in getting his clearance and being asked like, why did you believe? Why did you make the bomb? If your morals suggest mm-hmm. you should never have made the bomb, and there's just no answer. Mm-hmm. There's just yeah, and and that speechlessness hit me so hard because you already know why and you already know the history but couldn't you can't feel it unless it's depicted in this way um and i think it's really successful in that one of the most interesting things about the movie for me and this sort of goes back to the idea of that like fight accompli feeling of of everything being preordained is the sense that all of these theoretical physicists know that their work can only be expressed practically their theoretical work is only going to be expressed be expressed practically through the war effort through the process of making a weapon i mean it is um all in the back of their minds and they are either in a sort of like shared denial or uh just you know sort of have unspoken agreement not to talk about it but when oppenheimer is in berkeley and there are whispers of the 
you know, the government coming around, I mean, like everyone immediately knows that it's going to be in the interest of making a bomb yeah. um, because there is really no other physical expression of the work that they've been doing um, that is going to be funded and made and then put into the real world. And like, you know, that reminded me so much of uh, the Hayao Miyazaki masterpiece, The Wind Rises, yeah. which is another film about somebody who is sort of cursed to make beautiful things and think, you know, th- he's designing these airplanes that he loves, and he, but is the cross to bear is that he knows that his inventions, which are so beautiful in and of themselves, um, and in this case, I mean, I'm not talking about the bomb, is literally as I'm talking about the plane that uh, the character in The Wind Rises made, but like the, the invisible world, the universe behind the curtain that Oppenheimer sees is so beautiful to him, um, and is sort of cursed the idea that it can only be manifest in this horribly, you know, horrifically, cataclysmically violent way. And that is interesting to me. And I think there's a lot of the, the numbness, the inability to comprehend with that. The idea that so much of what the government was, was arguing in favor of using the bomb was this idea of a, a spectacle of deterrence and that like people can't imagine this kind of firepower until they see it. And I think that's true of the people who are making the bomb as well, where it's like they understand. That's what Oppenheimer says to his team. Right. I mean, it's like they, they can't imagine, you know, what it is that they can create until it's actually made. Um, and yeah. And so like all that is very, very interesting. But when they do the Trinity test and there's an hour of the movie to go and we spend the rest of it in uh, various different courtrooms, essentially, uh, with Robert Downey Jr., talking and trying to besmirch Oppenheimer's character <coughs> and Oppenheimer is having, you know, what I think, <coughs> excuse me, like the most obvious way of expressing his, his remorse and guilt, you know, this, this, that scene that Katie referenced earlier where he is giving a speech and he has this vision of everyone in the crowd being incinerated by the atomic bomb, including Nolan's own daughter, her face melting off. <coughs> I mean, I think that that is the most sort of hackneyed way of expressing how the inventor of the atomic bomb might feel, uh, might visualize his own, uh, you know, trying to process his own feelings in the aftermath of doing so. I don't know. I just, I you don't that, feel you, like... You felt like that scene was hackneyed as it played out? Yeah. I felt like the whole last hour of the movie is like, Nolan doesn't, like, he, he can't imagine, because he's saying, and I think in a way that comes across to me, that what Oppenheimer was going through in this experience is sort of unfathomable. I mean, unfathomable in a very different way than the devastation that his technology caused, but unfathomable in an emotional way. And how can you dramatize the unfathomable? I mean, it's a difficult challenge. I don't necessarily have the answer. Um, But I think that that sort of stymies this movie over the last hour in particular, where he he doesn't, he, he can't really dive any deeper into Oppenheimer's frame of mind because doesn't really know what was there other than like sticking with the facts I, of Oppenheimer. You know, I kind to of agree that the, the, like, program. the visualization of, of the horrors, but in front of him when he's lecturing to students is, is a, it is it's inches towards the like film school uh, crutch uh, of, of visualization. And but the you sound do wonder, in like, that scene, the way the sound drops the sa- in, and I will drops say the sound out, and the music in this movie does so much, so much work. And I, I guess I did have a thought like, well, are they going to show the destruction of Japan? And can they show these images? But I, I also imagine as soon as you cross that threshold, like you're entering a totally different documentary yeah. territory that you you would never win your audience back. People would be walking out of the theater. It's, it would be so, so, so horrific and, and hard to 
uh, go on from those moments. Um, but David, I, I do wonder, like the thing that hovered over that last hour for me, and it's not spoken that much as you kind of touched on earlier, but his Jewish roots here and the fact that he started on this to, he says this out loud in a, in a very poignant moment where I'm like, where he's wooing Krumholtz's character into the plan to be like, Hey, these are anti-Semites. Like we got to stop either the anti-Semites are going to have a nuke or we're going to have a nuke who should have a nuke. Yeah. Um, I found that to be, that yeah. hit me hard. And, and, and that, and then the moment that it, like double back to that is like when and this is something that I I think I knew but I I just not in the moment where hey Hitler's dead like we're going to win the war we don't have to drop the bomb anymore right oh right they dropped the bomb after Germany has been defeated essentially months, this, they months didn't after. have yeah, to months. do this they didn't have to do it and this is why and and Oppenheimer should have been satisfied at that moment but no they he is still convincing them that like they have to complete the mission, they have to drop the bomb, and it is it's really tough to watch uh, those those moments where he's I mean, wrestling think, with his his faith that isn't that important to him, even if whether it's, it's really the movie or in the book. But the movie, and thank God for this, does not make a moral argument in favor of annihilating several hundred thousand people. I mean, God forbid that would have been uh, that would have been misstep to say the least. Yeah, but what I think is impressive about Nolan's approach and, and something I'm not surprised he was able to do as well as he does, even though I wish it cut deeper in a lot of different ways, is that he's able to thread the needle to a degree of saying there is no moral argument for that. And yet people could still participate in the program for the right reasons that those two ideas can yeah. coexist, um, even if they cause friction of their own. And that they, yeah, I mean, it's, it's those, they're, it, it's, it's the kind of thought that breaks your brain where it's like, you know, there, it, there is no justifying an act of such wanton destruction. Uh, and really, and they, and they use the word genocide in the film, which is appropriate. Um, but it is, you know, in the circumstances under which they did it or believed it were, they were operating, I mean, um, you know, that, that line about, like, I don't know if I can trust our government with this kind of technology, but I know that, that we can't trust the Nazis with it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there, there is this faith that these people were doing it for, they were, you know, doing, doing an unprecedentedly heinous thing for the right reasons. Um, and I don't think, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I get very uncomfortable in this idea of, of exonerating or, or, um, passing judgment on a degree, a calamity of that scale. Um, but uh, it, it is, it is the third rail that the movie touches and I think does so delicately. Um, and it's very interesting. I just like the human element of it. I, I, I just wish he went deeper and I know it's not Nolan's strong suit, but I do think that this is one of the movies that could have benefited from the emotionality that he sometimes gets criticized for because it comes out in such undiluted ways. Um, when again, thinking of Matthew McConaughey crying as he talks to his daughter um, mm. in Interstellar and sees that she's aged 20 years in the last 90 minutes, um, which now as a parent, I oh, think is you know, short of like losing a kid is the worst nightmare. It's like your um, absolute, the, specifically your children aging too fast. Is this like, yeah. 
It happens on WandaVision. This is a real tangent, but like on WandaVision, in one episode, the kids age themselves <laughs> up five years in a second, and like it might, made my heart stop. Like, what There's an a, awful thought. Oppenheimer has a moment of child endangerment. <clears throat> oh, I was man. I'm like, oh, we're doing here were too? We're pulling all the strings. Terrible parents. They were, they were terrible parents. parents. Um, sure I wanted to ask if he thought there does. should be more Emily Blunt. In the, in well, the I movie. do think Patrick, but I, I'm glad yeah. that you brought that up because because like the whole thing of like him discarding, you know, women for first and foremost, but also the child that he has, Emily Blunt. Um, they have two. It, it's such an interesting counterpoint to the idea that he's building this thing that is going to eliminate hundreds of thousands of lives, and he, in order to do that, needs to, um, or really just to, to be himself, it seems, uh, discard. You know, some of the people closest to him. And there is an interesting tension there that the movie only really sort of skirts over the surface and seems really uninterested and engaging is that it has to spend all this time with fictional Alvin Ehrenreich being like, oh, so you wrote this article for Time Magazine? You were playing fourth dimensional chess the whole time? <laughs> Shoss, you're a genius. You're an asshole. Like, it's... And that character is very transparent. Um, Robert Downey Jr., I love to see him act in a real way for the first time in so long. It's like he's and back he's to life. he's playing a Tony Stark... He's playing a Tony Stark adjacent character in a way. Um, is it the same sort of braggadocio as Tony Stark has? Kind of. Um, and even like yeah, less yeah, of a moral like. He's such a on. weak person. Well, I, Tony Stark was a competent Iron Man too, as well. Andy, come on. Okay. Uh, right. But um, a lot of hearings, but, a lot of congressional hearings in Iron Man too. Yeah, also. exactly. Um, I think you're thinking of the Godfather part too. Actually, <laughs> I know those movies are often confused, but the um, but yeah, I like I, that character. It just felt like it was beneath the the level of history that we're dealing with here. And I think, you know, that this idea of men like that, craven men um, who aren't able to sort of see this universe behind our own, getting control of that kind of power is interesting. It's obviously like a sort of Democles, it's what happened. And it's yeah. a sort of Democles hanging over our world today. And like all these things are relevant to the story that no one's telling, but at what cost? I mean, like the expense of the human drama that we get of losing. Yeah, I think he is indulgent here. He wants to kind of redeem Oppenheimer. He wants the scenes where he can tell the audience that if you have any thoughts about Oppenheimer being a commie or a or a, mm. a bad person, like, look, this is what really happened. He wants that satisfying is, Hollywood ending, and yet he also Katie, ends the movie is, with the Earth on the fire. <laughs> and she sure does. Um, wow. Downer. Which is uh, not subtle, but um, no. yeah. What were you asking? Katie, is the book American Prometheus, is that as overtly sympathetic towards Oppenheimer as this oh, movie is? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's a, about him and his brain and the people who knew him and like, you know, the the witch hunt against him. Like, I can't imagine anyone going into this movie being like, well, you know, he was, he had communist ties. So like, I don't know if that's why we should support him. Like that, is, that feels like such an irrelevant lens through which to view someone in their work now um i mean he also like had this really deeply held belief that like by having a nuclear bomb it would stop all future wars this is something he and neil spore talk about in the movie it's a in the book extensively like his whole thing is like they can't fear it unless they see it like i think he later said we should have just set it off at um los alamos it should have just been the test and then that would have been enough for everyone else to say okay we're done and you know the thing that it sort of skips over more in the movie is that like when they're trying to develop the H-bomb, he was also really arguing for international control over nuclear weapons to be like, if we all know that we have it and no one makes them, then we'll all be safe. That was his logic. And, you know, bombing Hiroshima and Nagasaki were like not necessary for that plan and of action. Human nature 
human nature doesn't necessarily allow for no. that logic to no. Yeah, well, and this is back to what we were talking about talking about at the beginning. It's like he didn't understand people the way that he thought he did, and he didn't like get the human nature aspect of it. He was a physicist. I think that's part of the tragedy of it too. And like the blankness that you're seeing in him in the last part of the movie, you know, he's sitting in that kangaroo court silently and like watching all of his old friends parade in and out. Like it is him kind of not able to keep up with the tide of history as it was walking right by him. I think that's part of the character. And Matt Damon is so important to getting in Oppenheimer's head in this, Mm -hmm. I think, because it's like, I don't trust the government. I don't want to work with them. And Damon is just just looking like a slob, like a fat neck, like, hey, come on, be my friend. He's just cracking <laughs> jokes and he's great. Like, he's so he's good in so the movie, good in this movie and charming. And like, you want them to team up and like build this bomb. But then when they build the bomb, Damon just walks off and is like, fuck mm-hmm. off, man. I don't, I don't really need you anymore. We got the bomb. We're going to go do the thing. And then yet he still shows up for the hearings to be like, this well, because Damon, he likes him. He yeah. likes him. Yeah, yeah, they um, got along really well. Yeah. It's so complicated. It's human interaction yeah, and you know, with all I, these um, too big to conceive like wartime moments. I, I, I don't want to pay too fine a point on this, but I, I do really, because especially because I think it's entirely possible that I just had this sort of preconceived notion um, and I haven't rewatched The Wind Rises recently enough to really stand by the, the parallels that I'm making. But in my memory, uh, you know, that movie really feels like kind of what I was hoping for from Oppenheimer. Not that I necessarily needed Oppenheimer to be that sort of nakedly emotional and Miyazaki is eventually making a sort of historical melodrama, which Oppenheimer or Nolan is not interested in. But in terms of getting into the complications that Patches is talking about, that movie does it so brilliantly and with such sort of devastating, devastatingly bittersweet ways um, and sort of trying to broker a piece between the need to create and the destruction that can result from it. But I will say that uh, speaking to that complication also, I visited uh, when I was a little bit younger, I visited um, Hiroshima on the anniversary of the nuclear bombing on, I went on August 6th, 2009, I think it was. Um, And I was so, you know, I I don't want to make any sort of sweeping generalizations or input words on in the mouths of the Japanese people at large. Um, but I was struck at least by at least the tone of the monuments and the, the spirit of that particular day and the people who chose to gather there. Because I couldn't imagine a parallel like this happening in another country in the world, certainly not in America, where the spirit was not at all sort of defensive. It wasn't, you know, even it wasn't even primarily focused on the loss of life, um, even though you could see. The, the, the bodies of the people uh, who were there, um, you know, the, the continuing fallout of the nuclear bombs. I mean, the, the deformities and um, you know, the way that the gene pool had been poisoned by it. I mean, it was manifest before your eyes. But the entire galvanizing spirit of the H-bomb dome, uh, the A-bomb dome, rather, um, and the museums that they have and the people lighting, uh, putting candles in these boats and the river and the stream that runs through it. Um, it was all about creating a world where nobody uses an A-bomb again. It was like a, mm-hmm. it was like a, a, an ownership again. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not implying by any stretch of the imagination that the people who, the innocent people who died you know, during the bombings deserved it or whatnot. And like, but like, it's the, the, the sort of capitulation, the, the, the country was sort of taking at large to the 
um, role that they played in, in being in the situation where that show of force uh, was ultimately used and sort of coming out of that moment and, and just trying to build towards a world where this never happens again. And doing what Oppenheimer I, I was, thought might happen. I don't know. I was really blown away by it. was just a terrible choice of words. And yeah, well, yeah, just strike that and reverse it. Let's see. Um, uh, but <laughs> I, um, boy, uh, I, especially since I spent the last 24 hours, like painstakingly taking any such glib puns out of my Oppenheimer review. Um, I, I was very moved and surprised by the overall spirit of that event, because I know that if the tables had been turned and the bomb had been dropped on America, certainly I think if you go to Pearl Harbor, I mean, you know, I'm not conflating the allies and the axis of evil um, and the morality of what they stood for, but it's just hard to imagine any American memorial to a mass death being at all reflective in that way. Yeah, the 9-11 um, memorial is, I don't know. It's well, different. It's, it's, different. it's different. It's a different it's a thing. It's, re- it's reflective, literally reflective. It's water pool. Yeah, sure. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, but of course the spirit, you know, of America in the aftermath of 9-11 couldn't be further removed from what no, I'm talking very, about. very, very much uh, so. And, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was very moving. Um, and, uh, I don't know if you ever have an opportunity I'm, to do that, I highly recommend it. It feels like it's making it sound callow to be like Oppenheimer is not as concerned with the guilt around the, that bombing as maybe you expected it to be, but like, that's sort of not as much of what the story is. It's a lot about his communism and his persecution. And like the, it's about critiquing the American industrial complex that built up after the war more than what specifically he was involved in, which kind of makes sense for something that comes from his point of view. You know, I think straws at one point is like, he never apologized, never said he felt bad about Hiroshima, which like, I, th- I think that's true, but I think the level of his guilt was kind of on his face. Um, it's kind of also it's more like about, it's more about the, the Cold charts. War than World War II <laughs> like, in some ways. Like the like you can't get a Hallmark card that's like, I'm sorry for uh, creating the world's most devastating. <laughs> I mean, the end of the movie is, is pretty is bleak in this moment. I mean, that's the last beat that Nolan yeah. leaves us on, just feeling absolutely horrible about this and the idea that the A-bomb could have created a chain reaction that destroyed Earth's atmosphere and burned us all to a crisp. It didn't, but maybe it did? Have a yeah, good night, folks. Well, good night. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but like, I left this movie feeling like exhilarated. Like I was so kind of in awe of how I had seen this story play I out um, that I just, I, I felt like I left on a high, you know, in a mm. weird way, despite the incredible as, depressing nature of that ending. As someone who uh, is big on believing that no great movie can be truly depressing uh, for the very reason you're describing, I... Knew that this movie fell short of greatness in my eyes for that because very you were reason. Depressed. I left feeling thoroughly hollowed out um, and a little just sort of exasperated. Um, but because I was like, that's it. I mean, I do the final moments that he has with Robert Downey Jr. Um, where the structural conceit sort of finally pays off are interesting. But um, yeah, I don't know. It all, it all well, I, I just wanted it to go a little bit deeper and not quite so wide. I'll tell you what. It was interesting enough that we've gone very long on Oppenheimer. We didn't even talk about this the scene where I laughed out loud when Albert Einstein revealed himself from behind like a bus wearing a big gray sweatshirt being like, oh, hello, Oppie. Well, you, you know his ghost still wanders Princeton at night wearing mm. ratty sweatshirts and uh, sweatshirt. spouting oh, off uh, wisdom. We didn't talk about Florence Pugh once. Dude, Albert, I mean, we Florence didn't. Stone, and like, she, I, mean, uh, I would very say that naked, she's multiple times in the really she is the mallest female character that Nolan has written in a long time. 
it, that being a reference to the character of Maul in Inception. She has um, some Nolan <laughs> dead wife syndrome for sure. Um, uh, she I, really, but, really but does. I, also, I mean, you can make an entire movie about that you, woman and it would yes. be fascinating. And I, um, that's right, not what he was doing here, but I like read the book about her. I'm very interested in her, but like always kind of had a hunch that it wasn't going to be able to do right by her. And it just like, can't like she's an important part of the story but she's not central to what the story is actually going to take them into and it's you gotta move on at a certain point like that's what he does in his life i don't know it's tough and i love like the the subjectiveness of the when she shows up in the um you know kangaroo court scene like i've never seen oh Nolan God, do something like that. that like that there was some there's really more dream sequences stuff. in this movie than inception like it has more <laughs> dream logic than the movie about going into people's dreams yeah when she's might. like Fucking him in the in the interrogation, dead staring yeah, was... at Emily Blunt, like whoa. But it's like it's the kind of thing that feels like a band aid for a gaping wound. It's like it, it felt to me like similar to the the vision he has of all the people being incinerated in front of him, um, like a movie that knows that it really hasn't been able to get bought into this guy's head, trying to bust out a few pretty simple. Cinematic you, you think this is Nolan of, cutting corners uh, doing like expositional yeah, VO, but in sure. his way. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I, I, um, I, I even buy that. As still, I will, give, as I will give Florence Pugh credit for, I think, doing a lot with a little. I mean, like, yeah. she she little brings clothing. a real sort of like fleshy, tactile humanity fleshy. to the movie in this mm. uh, uh, this academic world of theoretical physicists. And she walks in and and the movie takes on a new energy. Um, and I think she does more with this part than just about anyone else could, but, uh, not, not giving a ton to do. And Emily Blunt, God bless her, given even less, uh, all that business about the, the sheets. I, I, not, not I that couldn't much even understand business what that was about. The sheets. It's just a code word for them. It's a code word yeah, for when things are going right, when things are going wrong. Like, what are you talking like, about? Oh, the sheets, the sheets are yeah, out. Don't the sheets are in. Don't bring in like, the sheets because it didn't go well. What do you, what is, what do you? I you mean, gotta learn to code, it, man. There's it not much. Learn to code. Uh, learn to code, bro. There's not much of a dramatic jolt there. Anyway, I mean, like, oh, you were dead. It's. Not. I think it's so frustrating for me because I. I so. Because you invented the A bomb too, and because I invented the A bomb, and I want. Full I didn't credit. need this no, representation. There's, there's just so so much is immensely impressive about this movie. I think I. I, I am so. Um, it's sort of in awe of its ambition and appreciative of the tact that it takes. Um, I, it's just frustrating that to see a movie with this much going on at this level of artistry and craft and have it not really come together um, and oh. feel kind of exasperating. It, um, it, it so comes yeah. together. It does. Yeah. I mean, Maybe I I'm like, glad we're on the right. Side I think you've made many smart points, David. I mean, like, and like, this is it. just evidence. I, I'm not sure if that's true. But it's I'll evidence it. of how you can see a movie and everyone takes the smart. same point. Yeah, he did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know who else made some smart points is Jesus. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. You could like, you, I do think everyone can watch the same things and come away with different takeaways. I just think it's telling that we talked about this movie for however long we have, and we haven't really talked about Killian Murphy at all. Um, I think that that is sort of reflective of how we've been um, talking about him the whole. Yeah, time. that's kind of how uh, I feel. Like, we've been staring in his eyes. I'm living no, no, this no. movie through him. I loved like, him in this movie. We, we spend really so much time looking movie. at him and very little time sort of thinking about him. And I that, think his face does a lot of what you're doing. I mean, again, I'm not putting this at Killian Murphy. Acting is reacting. Chain reacting. To ever play Oppenheimer, <laughs> Killian Murphy. Uh, I mean, Robert Downey Jr. is Jewish on his father's side, I will say. Because otherwise, that moment in the very beginning of the movie where you have Christopher Nolan, 
who is the least Jewish man alive, uh, directing a scene where Killian Murphy and Robert Downey Jr. are comparing their Jewishness. Talking about Temple Emmanuel. Really, like, rocketed me out of the theater. But then David um, Crumholtz but, shows up, who's like, he's like double right. Jewish, right? Like, doesn't he right. like count that, for extra? That balances it out, yeah. <laughs> I'm about to say that. Crumholtz is so good in this movie. This he just wants yeah, yeah, to eat. Because no, no, Katie, Katie, this is too important. We can't, we can't. Like, okay. Yeah. Because like, Let's Katie, I think going. about this arithmetic. I, can't, I think about this arithmetic when I think about my children. It's like, my wife is not at all Jewish, but am I so Jewish that they will, like, am I 51%? Like, am I Jewish <laughs> enough that my kids will be 51% Jewish? Uh, Only you know. can answer that question. Ask David Crumholtz. Yeah. He might be my If I were David Crumholtz, this, yeah. this would be a complete non-issue. <laughs> What about Josh Hartnett? Is he, uh, Josh Hartnett is so good in this movie. Did we say that at the so beginning? I'm movie. so like, happy Josh to see him. His bangs, first off. Like, I'm a Jew. I would be like, I'm the wrong kind of Jew. Like, Hartnett is back. Is jo- will you Google Josh Hartnett Josh- Jewish? We're all Googling if Josh Hartnett's Jewish. <laughs> There's no the- chance on earth. But I'm trying to see if I'm Ernest Lawrence was uh, Jewish. He's from South Dakota. and from Okay, the- yeah, this is the end of the Oppenheimer segment. We have gone so long chance that he could be jewish that there are not even any google hits around josh Hartnett jewish google's like what are you talking about yeah he's playing does not seem to have been jewish either so uh we're, we're good here if this segment goes any longer i'm going to have to drive my baby over to some other physicist's house and say take care of him while i finish the bomb well no uh, while i go ride a horse with my wife while I go she ride a our horse. children nolan has oh, called man. this his western i guess there's a few I'll, scenes I'll where they to, they to ride horses is when I, the other people on this call have not seen Barbie. Um, by the time this comes out, I think many of the people listening probably will have seen Barbie. That horses are the great connective tissue between Barbie and Oppenheimer and Barbenheimer. You'll see what I'm talking about. Horses are. If bad. you haven't, go to the theaters and you'll find out for yourself. Playing in theaters, 30 70 millimeter IMAX theaters across the country, and and actual IMAX all over the place. Go see Oppenheimer. Look at what. See, seeing yeah. this in 70 millimeter IMAX was quite an overwhelming experience. See, David did like it. <laughs> I want to realize, man, the way I feel in me. How do you feel? I want to realize, women, the way I feel in me. How do you feel? I'm gonna explode. You mean you're gonna That does it for this week's show. I will not be back next week. I'll be on vacation, but you guys will be back next week to talk about Barbie without me because of the patriarchy. I know. Um, In the meantime, tell the people who you are. Hashtag Katie I'm Ken. No, wait. I'm Matt Patches. I'm the executive editor at Polygon. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. Blue Sky, Mr. Patches. I'm on Letterboxd at Mr. Patches. And uh, we have a website, fightingintheworm.com, where, as alluded to, I think we've talked about Dunkirk, I think we talked about Tenet, probably a lot of Nolan movies over the years. So go back into our archives and listen to our old thoughts on Nolan. See if they line up with this timeline and maybe cross cut them as you listen mm-hmm. to them for the full effect. I'm David Ehrlich. I'm the film critic at IndieWire. You can read my, I can't imagine you would want to at this point, uh, but you could read my uh, extravagantly long review of Oppenheimer on IndieWire, um, where I gave it a gentleman's B, which I think across over the course of our segment on Oppenheimer. Um, you can find me on Twitter, David Ehrlich. I suppose you can find me on Blue Sky at 
david.blue.sky, whatever the fuck it is. Um, you can find all of us on iTunes, Fighting in the War Room. Leave us a review or else we'll talk about Marvel Snap and my kitty bounce deck for five minutes. Doesn't sound as... It's not as dirty as it sounds, but it's pretty filthy when I put up those numbers. Um, that's it. Katie? Uh, I'm Katie Rich. The nearest place showing Oppenheimer in 70mm to me is a 10-hour drive. Um, so I didn't see it in 70 millimeter. It was still really good in IMAX. Go see it in IMAX. Um, I will be on vacation next week. I will see Barbie tomorrow. Uh, you can find me at Vanity Fair and on the Little Gold Men podcast, where, as I mentioned earlier, we did a book club on Oppenheimer. It was before I had seen it, so it's more about the book than the movie. Um, but I still think it interesting. Listen, if you want to hear more about Ip- more about Oppenheimer, which I certainly do at this point, um, you can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich on Blue Sky at Katie Rich. Also, I think I join threads. <laughs> don't, don't follow me on threads. I can't. I, I can't open threads anymore. Um, you can follow us all for now only on Twitter. I think at FITWR, where yeah, you can tell us good. if you got to see Oppenheimer in seventy millimeter, or you can answer this week's lightning round question. Patches, would you tell me what it was? In honor of Oppenheimer, what is the best cinematic explosion? Thanks for listening, and some of us will be back talking to you next week.